Salutations, Mets fans, and welcome to this week's edition of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro, and with me this week is Greg Karam. Greg, last night, Sunday night, we're recording this on Monday night, World Wrestling Entertainment presented Extreme Rules live on pay-per-view on the WWE Network, a pay-per-view full of extreme stipulation matches like Last Man Standing, Steel Cage, Kiss My Ass, which isn't really extreme, but it's like a WWE thing. Anyway, if you could add one extreme wrestling stipulation to a Mets game, just one Mets game, not like the whole thing, what would it be? Uh, how about instead of uh, take out slide at second base, you can uh, you can actually clothesline the the guy you're trying to take out. So it's just like hardcore rules on all the bases. Sure. Yeah. You have like a little pair of brass knuckles like in your uh, stirrups that you pull out when you're about to steal bases and just punch the first baseman on the pickoff throw. That would that would go that, that would go that badly. Seems harsh. That would, <laughs> I feel like that would go bad uh, quickly. Uh, y- yeah, yeah, especially with all the uh, unwritten rules of baseball. Yeah, you're breaking a lot of unwritten – and written probably. Yeah, probably. <laughs> also written rules in the rule book. Um, I went for – I'm a big fan of sort of like the old school 80s NWA, like you know, bunkhouse brawl, concession stand brawl in Memphis. The one I like the best is the bull rope match. I'm a big fan of the bull rope match. Uh, WWE had their version in like the Russian chain match, which is also on uh, – last night's pay-per-view, but you have the two competitors tied together with a bull rope, and you have to, like, you can't just pin your opponent. You have to beat them so badly that you can touch all four corners before they get up and stop you, which is kind of silly, but there's also a cowbell in the middle, so you can hit the guy with a cowbell, and he usually bleeds. But I would just attach the bull rope to each team's middle infielders, because the Mets would have a huge advantage because it would not affect Daniel Murphy or Flores' range at all. <laughs> Uh, I, I can see it. Yeah. It's a long way to go for that joke, but here we are. And this is episode uh, 115, also titled the Well, Here We Are edition, because Well, Here We Are is 2015. We've caught up. We go into the future. Next episode. I don't know what to do with that. It'll probably just be like the turn forward. I can get like one episode out of like the turn forward the clock Mercury Mets thing, but only one, and then we're just done. Yeah. So I said last week on this very show, Greg, that if the Mets went 2-1, and one, the 2 out of 3 from both the, the Braves and the Yankees, we'd have to have like a serious conversation about the Mets being good because we're an eighth of the way through the season now. Yeah. And they went 3-0 and 1-2, oh and two, which comes out the same, mathematically speaking. Admittedly, it might leave a little bit less of a good taste in your mouth, and you get some silliness from the NYC tabloids, but you're going to get that anyway. So we can now have the conversation about the 14 and 5 Mets. And again, according to sources familiar with the MLB standings, that's the best record in baseball. It is. So we'll talk about that. Talk about the B Mets, who I saw for four, uh, I'm going to charitably call brisk days in Manchester, New Hampshire. <laughs> and we'll answer your emails. This is episode 115, and we start off with this question, Greg Caram. Mets were. 10-3 and three this time last week when we recorded. They are now 14-5. and five. Have we learned anything new? Um, well, no, not really. I mean, not that much has changed, I, th- I don't think. Um, they, they were able to continue to roll over some uh, lesser team 
and uh, they struggled against a decent team in the Yankees. And um, I mean, struggled, you know, close games, uh, at least last night was. Um, so I don't know. I mean, and uh, on the road, it's a good team, I think. I think they're going to be competitive. Um, you know, they, they have solid depth, they have good starting pitching. Um, I, you know, I, I, they, they seem like, you know, an above average baseball team. And I think that's what people thought last week as well. I mean, I don't think anyone was actually thinking that they were going to go and win 135 games. They're still on pace for 119 entering play tonight. Hey. I mean, the Yank series was weird. I think they're probably like similar true talent levels as teams this year. And it's three games on the road in that park. So I'm not going to read too much into it you know the media can get whatever grist they want out of that series that's their job and they're going to do that i do think maybe if you want to look at it as sort of a microcosm of the team i think it revealed maybe some weaknesses that might come into play later in the season when they're you know competitive and hopefully in a playoff race and still good um as i alluded to in our in our opening question and this is not a surprise to anyone. The middle infield, and this wasn't just on display in this series, the middle infield defense is bad. Yeah. You know, with Flores, at least for now, they always you're making the trade-off. He's been hitting. He's looked better at the plate the last two weeks. So, all right, you live with it. Even though there'll be, there'll be annoyance on Twitter every time he gets congratulated for making a routine play. Or making <laughs> a routine play look more difficult than it is, he has to make a big throw from his backhand. But he's been objectively bad as a shortstop. Like, unplayable for me, your mileage may vary. Uh, and Murph, I, I'm i not super worried about that. You know, it, it he'll be here till May 20th. That's when you get back the month of month plus of service time for Delson Herrera. And then, you know, maybe the organization is not as invested in Daniel Murphy. Especially the one year of Daniel Murphy they have left. Uh, under cost control than they are, I think, in the Wilmer Flores shortstop experiment. I don't think that I, I, I that's that's one of the things that's been going on early on. I think there's been a lot of overreaction because uh, we're at that time where it feels like enough time has gone by where we can start like making firm decisions and based on what's happening this year. But I, look, this is you know Murph's going to be Murph. He's gonna he's gonna bounce back. He's gonna give you bad defense, and he's gonna hit you, you know your your two eighty three twenty four ten, and he's gonna give you about two wins. I mean, that that's what Merck's probably gonna do. I don't I think that we would be jumping the gun if we we went down that road. No, I'm not saying that he won't he won't get there. I'm saying more that if he doesn't get there, if he continues to look awful at the plate, um, I think they'd be more willing to move on from Murphy during the season than they will with Flores. Flores' three home runs in the last two weeks has basically bought him to at least the All-Star break. Even if he does next to nothing for the next two and a half months. Yeah, that seems that seems right. The other thing I think we got to start thinking about, and anyone <laughs> listening to this podcast is on the internal Slack list for the site, knows I've been beating this horse for two days now, but they need another bat somewhere. And, you know, not in the – so there's a couple things. You get towards the trading deadline. You're in a playoff race. They're going to want – you know, you're going to want another power arm, like an established power arm for the pen, probably, like a setup dude. You're going to want a serious lefty bench back. 
that's not Kirk Nguyen Heist. And I like Kirk Nguyen Heist, but you want a serious lefty bench bat. But those are those are always available and always traded at the deadline anyway. Like every contending team usually needs that. Or something in that general vein of player. And as I discovered today, they have a huge 40-man crunch coming uh, this offseason between guys you're going to have to add for Rule 5 protection, you know, the 60-day DLs, guys coming back on, and only a few uh, 40-man slots opening up with free agents. So they might be better served to move some of those sort of back-end 40-man guys or potential 40-man guys for, the, you know, the another setup man. Like I don't know who it's going to be, but some established major league reliever. Or for a, a lefty, you know, a veteran lefty bench mat. You know, Sean Green or whatever. And not Sean Green, obviously, but that kind of uh Yeah. That kind of guy. You can I mean you can get those. But I'm talking more about and the guy I've been sort of beating every writer on the site over the head with is uh Carlos Gomez. Okay. And it's I, yeah, shortstop's still the issue. We know this. It's a, it's the more glaring need. But at this point, in part because the Rockies are better than expected, at least in the short term of one-eighth of a season. And moreover because, uh, you know, Noah Syndergaard's not really fully healthy Steven Matz is going to be in this rotation at some point this year, probably after the Super 2 deadline. You know, Kevin Ploiecki is in the majors, and you probably want to keep him around as Travis Darno insurance, Dilson Herrera's Murphy insurance, you know, Brandon Nemo we'll get to in the BMET segment. There's just there's not that, you know, what are you putting together for a trade for Tulowitzki at this point? Or even someone like Starlin Castro. I think it's tougher to build a trade for that guy than it was six months ago. Sure. Yeah, but I mean, you want Carlos Gomez, um, like, in a vacuum. I mean, they're not, that's not just, that's just not something that's going to happen unless, you know, a guy like Kadire or Granderson goes down. Which is probably going to happen. Right. Just the odds of Granderson, Ligaris, and Kadire all making it through the next 140 games healthy is highly unlikely. That's true. Like people but, don't realize that. It's like we all look at the Zips projections at the beginning of the year and they all play 150 games, but Darno's already hurt. Wright's already hurt. You know, Kadir's already had a couple injury scares. And it's like Carlos Gomez is a way better baseball player than Michael Kadir or Curtis Granderson. And he's making no money in the next two years. Right. So he's going to cost you a good bit. He is, but the, he's a guy the Brewers really have to move on from. Because the Brewers are really bad and they only have. Two more years of control. I mean, this year and next year, they're probably going to. I mean, they're not going to do it. He's he's going to be looking for one more big payday, uh, Gomez, and I believe he's a Boris client, or at least he was at some point, as I recall. And it's almost like the perfect. And there, he's not going to be on the next good Brewers team, basically. They need to bring in meaningful pieces. And I think Gomez can do that. He's not going to cost as much as Tulowitzki because he's not as good as Tulowitzki, which means he's still a top 30, 40 player in baseball. And uh, there's only two years of control there, a year and a half probably when you're dealing for him. But I mean, that's the kind of bat that I think if you're, they need to bring in. I mean, Danny Munno DH'd last night. 
Yeah, that's fair. But they, they do have some guys who are hurt, and um, they, they that, again, though, with that that kind of player like Gomez, those guys are going to have to go down first before we even start thinking about that kind of trade. But you do bring up a good point: is that they, you know, we have the Mets have uh, backup insurance at pretty much every position uh, on the infield. But once you get to the outfield, it's not you know, good. It's, it's, it's not that good because the guys that they have in AAA are not really. Um, they're they're probably below not prospects. Level. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, Nimmo, you got in AA, but he's you know as we'll talk about later, he's he's not exactly tearing the cover off the ball. And then your other best outfield prospect is stuck in uh, High A. So it's that it's definitely a place that's could uh, end up being a concern down the road because you've got a guy like. Um, Kadire there, who's always hurt and is probably going to at least go on DL for you know at least fifteen days at some point this year. Yeah, and it's it's problem is once you get into that situation, all of a sudden now, you know, teams have you more over the barrel, and like guys like Kadire shouldn't be you know whatever. Michael Kadire has been signed for two years and twenty million. He should not block Carlos Gomez or a player of that caliber. That's the kind of guy they should go after. You know, you can start looking at at a at a short term rental even, and it's like I know it's sort of like saber anathema to trade six years of cost control, even of like a whatever kind of prospect of I don't know Marcos Molina for a rental, but you know it, they may never have a better opportunity to make the playoffs than they do this year in the next two or three years. Like you just don't know what the division's going to look like or the league's going to look like in two years. Right, but what are you talking about? You're talking about making the move when? Right now? I'm not saying and, right now. I mean, obviously, you know, if you're looking at like a rental, like a one-year rental, then I think the earlier you make that move, the better. I don't think you make that move at July, 31st, at July 31st. Maybe you make it at June 30th and get that extra month out of them. But someone like Carlos Gomez, yeah, maybe you can wait until the deadline. Yeah. But it's something that there's that, going to come a point in time this is a league average offense still. We're now 20-ish, 19 games and 696 plate appearances in for accounting purposes. The team's hit 246, 319, 369. It's almost dead-on league average for park and league factors. And this all seems, this is all backed up by sort of what we've seen and I think what we expected coming into the year. I don't think the ceiling for this offense is that much higher than what it is now, somewhere between, you know, ten, five to ten points below league average and five to ten points above league average. And look, you can win with that, with that plus a good pitching staff and a good bullpen. Yeah, you can absolutely make the playoffs with that. Um, so sort of the other thing I learned this weekend is I don't know how confident I am with the back end of this starting rotation at the moment. It's the way it's going to go, you know. These are guys who, at the end of the day, they're going to have, you know, high to mid uh, three ERAs, and you don't get there in a straight line, you know. So there's going to be these games where they go out there, they go, you know, give up five runs in six innings, and there are going to be other games where they go out there and give up two runs in seven innings. You know, that, that's just that's the way this is going to go, and and you're going to feel like this with every last start that they have out there. I feel, you know. No, I agree, and the problem comes when 
you know, Jacob DeGrom leaves a few fastballs up. Because, I mean, right. part of the reason they're 14-5, and five, they've won every single Bartolo Colon and Matt Harvey start. Yeah. You know, the problem, they haven't really seen a sustained losing streak. Um, and just, yeah, you're not going to have five stoppers, and, you know, the teams they're competing with outside of the, the Nationals, which are their own sort of tire fire right now. You know, guys like, you, the back end of the Braves rotation, you've got guys like Aaron Harang and Eric Stoltz. Yeah, I think right. the, I believe the Pirates are starting Vance Worley tonight. I thought I saw that. So I mean, yeah, he's, it's, he's, it's, he's, he was solid last year. Yeah, he's Vance Worley. Yeah, he's a <laughs> number four starter. He's going to frustrate you in like the same way Dylan G is, and I understand that. But the difference between you know the Pirates and even the Braves and the Mets right now is the Mets have potentially better options down on the farm. This is true. This is true. Um, you, this is the thing, though, is that this this start that they've had has kind of given them a cushion, in a sense, that they they don't have the urgency to make that kind of move right now. After that, they've delayed everything a year. I don't know if that's and the way to look at it. I agree, I agree, but also on the other hand, it, these guys aren't exactly forcing the issue at the same time. Well, so, Matt's took a no hitter into the seventh until some dude I never heard of broke it up. Right. That was his first good start. Well, I mean, he's had control issues down there, certainly. Uh, I mean, the stuff is, is great. And Vegas is weird. Like, it I think Stephen Matz can definitely get major league hitters out now. I agree. I think he can potentially be better than Dylan G right now. No, I, I agree. Is if, he a finished it, product? No. But, you know, you can... You're in that zone where, yeah, you can develop him at the major league level. You can finish him off at the major league level. I mean, if you buy into the stuff, which you should, because Steve Matz is a motherfucker. He is. And, and look, he's going to get his chance, because they, they're going to go with the six-man rotation at, at, at times, and they're gonna, a lot of those guys are going to come up and get starts this year, I, I feel. I think they're going to you know, try to stretch out this rotation as much as they can. See, my concern is, like, John Neese will go on the DL with shoulder soreness in around Memorial Day or something because that's a thing that happens to John Neese every year pretty much Yeah, uh, and they'll hold off on calling up Matt's because of Super 2 stuff even if he's shoving in Vegas I just don't think the, that the conversation around player development and the organization and the team has to start to change a little bit because now you're in winning mode win Major League games Right, I I understand what you're saying. I I think that the organization themselves are, are going to take try to take a long view of this, and that they're going to try to they're they're trying to set this up to be a continual winner, and they're not going to want to trade for Carlos Gomez. They're not going to want to if if they don't have to, they're not going to want to push the service time on these guys. I'm just saying that this is probably what's going to happen based on what we've seen you know in the past. You I mean you can call it a continual winner? I mean, this is something we'll talk about a little bit. I think we talk about the BMets too, but it's like. Yeah, I mean, your organization, any organization, it's not full of roll six dudes. It's just not. Even a good system like the Mets. It's not. None of those guys are turning into Carlos Gomez. Let's be honest. I mean, they got some good prospects down there. They have some good prospects. None of them are turning into Carlos Gomez. 
Well, true, yeah, not turning into consequence, right. But you got to look at it realistically. I mean, you know, they're not going to do that. They're not no, going to trade. No, I know they're not going to do that, Greg. I know. I'm just saying, you know, come on. I mean, it's, here's my sort of philosophy on this. When you can win, the long-term plans have to go out the window to a certain extent. I said before, don't compare the 2015 Mets to the Royals last year. In that sort of, you know, winning with... It's pretty good starting pitching, shut down bullpen, good outfield defense. I mean, they've had one of those things. Well, two of those things. But still. I think you can take a lesson from the Royals. You know, the, a baseball team is not an index fund you buy and hold, and it slowly just, you know, improves year over year with the market. Sometimes you just got to push your, car, your chips in the center of the table. I, I Look, I, I agree with that. The time for that is not now, though, because they're they're winning without all that. No, no. I mean, you need probably another month to evaluate where you actually are as a team. But right, but they get. You see, here's the thing: is that they're talking about like skipping dude starts. They're gonna they're gonna skip a Harvey start in the next month, and it's gonna fry me. It's like, what are you doing, really? Well, yeah. I mean, look, it's not. Their plans for him are not as bad as, as you know sh- shutting him down. At least they no, have. No, I know, but it's just. At least they have a long view. But look, if they if they go five hundred the rest of the way, they're going to be in it, you know, the whole time. So they're going to need a sustain. I mean, they would need to go on a sustained losing streak in order to put these types of things in plan in, in play. It, it's. You, you know what I'm saying? Is they're, they're, if they're going to just go out there and then play to so-called their, their, their true talent, which is like about a 500 team, they're still just going to keep being above 500 and being in the mix. And so that, that maybe that level of urgency is not going to show up until later on in the year. We'll see. I don't, I don't really have any confidence that's going to happen regardless. <laughs> but we have an email later uh... – about if, if if the season so far has made you happy as a Mets fan, we'll get more into my I think my mental state then. Mm. But for now, we'll move on to the B Mets. So before I have a before we get into this, I wanna I don't think this has been. You know, we're gonna start getting into like minor league coverage now, as we do on the podcast, because both myself and Greg and most of our other co-hosts like talking about the minor leagues, and I don't think this has been announced publicly, but I'll do it now because whatever I'm halfway into my bucare. Um, so, obviously, Rob hasn't been on the show much lately. Rob has a new job and a new baby and is sort of stepping back a little bit from writing, and I've taken over a lot of the day-to-day minor league stuff for the site. I have, like, a new job title for people that care about those sort of things. It's mostly title creep. But, so I was sort of thinking as I go up, <laughs> when I was going up to Manchester, it's like, what do I really want? the sort of the minor league coverage will look like. And obviously we're still going to have the daily farm system reports. I think the prospect meters will still be there in one form or the other because everyone loves meters, meter Avenue and, and whatnot. Everybody loves meters, man. Yeah. Um, I got to get that Dickie fireball gift from Chris though for uh, I think it's awesome. Yeah. yeah. It's really the best part of the site. <laughs> That's um, it. And obviously as, as longtime listeners of the show will know my approach towards prospecting and prospect ranking industrial complex stuff is very different than Rob's. Yeah. Um, 
I had a big again. If you're on our internal Slack list, you know that I was sort of going off on this in our in our minor league coverage stuff today. But you know the way I look at it is, you know, can this guy help a major league team? This guy is this guy I want in my system. Yeah, you know, for my team. That's sort of the the framework I use to evaluate these guys. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the way. You know, and again, maybe I'm more of a of a tools guy than. Rob or, or Greg or Steve, but that's sort of like I like I like the I like to see it. I, I'm big on seeing it. And so, what I what I saw in Manchester, it was fucking freezing, Greg. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Well, th- that that shouldn't have been a surprise. No, I mean I I will. I'm a I'm a warrior. I I made it through the entire Thursday night game. I did leave uh, with one out in the tenth because it's fireworks night. And where the media parking is, if I had, they block off the road for the fireworks, so I've had to stay for an extra 45 minutes. Oh, no thanks. Yeah, and I had to do a podcast hit to preview the Yankee series. So I'm like, eh, I've seen John Velasquez before. It's not a big deal. Um, the Friday night game, I'm like, Gabriel, you know, is pitching. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to do this. I made it through six innings. And I literally could not hold my pen to write. <laughs> I had to go up to the press box. And that morning, I'd gone out to four different stores to find, like, long underwear and, like, thermal clothes. And I'd brought layers. It's not like I was I was prepared. Like, Sunday, I had four layers on, long johns, wool socks, and I was comfortable for a Sunday afternoon game. Comfortable. So, not warm. Comfortable. It must have been windy. It was windy. Yeah. Because that, that, that's always what kills you. I mean, it was, like, the most miserable... And I mean, I've been through three and a half hour games and forty degree drizzle in Binghamton, but it was it was brutal. <laughs> and that's uh, just the weather. <laughs> and that's just the weather. We'll get to the baseball. So as I do every year in Manchester, I want to. Uh, the guys in uh, New Hampshire are great to me. Uh, Tom Gothier, the the media guy, is there is great for me. He actually even let me uh, watch the Chelsea Arsenal first half on his iPad in the in the press box. So I got to that was that. kind of him. That was kind of him. They're always really good to me. I also give my yearly shout-out to the Republic Cafe, where I eat most of my meals. Uh, apparently, I didn't know this. I ended up looking it up for some reason. They were nomin- They were like a James Beard semifinalist. Really? Yeah, it's like a little hole-in-the-wall. Uh, you know, it seats maybe like 20. It's like farm-to-table with like North African and Mediterranean influences. That's a great find. It is. And it's just like in the middle of uh, the downtown area. And really, really good coffee, too, which is always a plus. I, I can't do the best Western coffee. It's just not going to happen. I'll make the trip from my hotel. I'll do that for, for, for a good cup of coffee. I'll do yeah. that. Um, I, I didn't have dinner there this year. I had it last year, and it was excellent. This year, I just had a couple of breakfasts there and lunch. But definitely worth going out of your way to, and not that it's really out of your way. It's in the middle of downtown to check out. So let's talk about the BMATs, Greg. And we'll continue with sort of the the weather caveat here we talk about all these guys and I was talking to a race scout after Saturday night or after Friday night and I'm like dude look like, yeah, like, obviously it was brutal he's like yes but you have to you know, your, your cross checker is not going to be like well it was cold so you don't have to write anything he's like no no I, you know, I have to I have to write everybody up that's what I have to do and I'll say in the notes it's cold and I'll see them again but I have to write up what I see so that's sort of the attitude I went in to this with again I could not write 
by the sixth inning of the Friday night game. Like, yeah. hold a pen and write it on paper. I'm not expected to snap off a slider here. So, you know, sort of one of the, did John Gant's breaking ball look better on Sunday afternoon than Cesar Yanoa because it was 15 degrees warmer? Maybe, but you write what you see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I saw some brutal fucking baseball, Greg. It's that bad, huh? Like, bad double-A baseball to me, and I've seen a, a decent amount of it over the years, is almost, like, more offensive than, like, bad rookie ball baseball or bad low-A baseball. Because they uh, should be competent. It, it should be competent, and usually, like, the way low minors baseball is bad is kind of, like, hilarious, like a gallows humor kind of way. <laughs> so... The other sort of caveat for the pitching performances is the Binghamton infield defense. They bottled four easy double plays, and probably another six to ten balls they should have turned into outs. They didn't. And yes, Gavin Chikini's hurt, or was hurt. He was in the lineup for Portland against Portland tonight. Fucking shocker, as Billy Wagner would say. Uh, TJ Rivera's been hurt. So the infield defense was, for all four games, Dustin Lawley at third, Josh Rodriguez at shortstop, Jairo Perez at second, Adeline Rodriguez at first. Mm. Yes. Dustin Lawley was easily the best defender on the field, and I've seen him at third a fair amount. He is a once a week guy at third, even in double A. He's probably he's a below average, he's like a like a four. Third baseman. <laughs> Josh Rodriguez, lovely little org soldier. I think he's in his 30s now. Should not be playing shortstop. You know, third, definitely. Second, in a pinch, okay, why not? Not shortstop. Jairo Perez, who uh, spent all last year in St. Lucie. He was like an indie ball pickup. He was very good last year. He was very good last year for St. Lucie. You know how many games he played at second base? No. Zero. Oh. You know what position he played most of his games at? I don't know. First base? First base. Yeah. Yeah. And he <laughs> he played second base like a guy that should be playing mostly first base. <laughs> Adeline Rodriguez. Well, I, I, Jeff Moore famously wrote him up in, in uh, Baseball Prospectus, wrote him up for Baseball Prospectus in St. Lucie with two eights and three twos. He wrote, yeah. him up as a, he wrote him up as a third baseman. It, it totally believable he's a 23rd baseman. Whew, I'd be hard-pressed to throw a three on him at first. Wow, that's bad. It's bad. I, w- I would give him a two, but he was okay on a couple scoops. I mean, he has zero range. So this this, is, this seems like the end of the road for him. It was, it was so bad. Just like routine plays. They had 20 hits that New Hampshire Fish Cats on Saturday night. And look, they definitely were squaring Luis Sessa and, and certainly the bullpen. There were just balls after ball going through the infield there. Oh, man. So that's, that, sounds, that sounds really fun. Oh, yeah. It was a blast. Like my first trip of the year, too, I was so excited. And then immediately after Thursday night, I'm like, I go into the press box the next morning, and the, the same scout as me, the race scout, is like, yeah, I don't think there's a single player on the field last night that can help a major league team. <laughs> oh, that's man. the level of baseball we're talking about. Uh, it's too bad because Brandon Nimmo was on the field. He was, and we'll get to Brandon Nimmo. We'll start with the arms. Now that Mike Kvetching about bad minor league defense. 
<laughs> is over. Probably not. It won't be the last time on this podcast, probably. This uh, year. No, 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 no. Um, so Gabby Yanoa, my man. My man, Gabby Yanoa. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm looking for, you know, we video scouted him at the end of in the last season. Right. I'm just looking for a little bit of progress or something similar to that. And again, it was, he pitched on the worst possible night to pitch. Um, out of the four, out of the four days. It was brutal. But the soft just, the stuff just looked soft. It was 89 to 93, sitting 91, 92. You know, the, the good slider he flashed the end of the last year. He flashed it, but it was very, very inconsistent. You know, the change up, he threw a couple good ones late, but didn't have a ton of feel for it. And just everything, he looked like an average double A starter. And again, I'm not going to kill him because of the weather. I'm going to have to see him again, but I still have to write what I saw, and I'm going to do that, and I have video and all that stuff. And yeah, he still showed you enough that I'm not going to, I'm not writing him up as a non-prospect or anything. But, you know, it, it, at a certain point, double-A production does matter for these guys. Yeah, and, and especially he needs to probably do a little bit more with his fastball, because you can't just be a guy who's got a change up and that's it you know he's got to be able to work off of that fastball and from what it sounded like it sounded like it was very hittable it was i mean you saw some of the two seam run down in the zone but he just didn't have the command and especially later in the start he was doubling up on the slider and change he just did not want to throw his fastball and when he did it was up and flat which is bad to see mm. you know we saw some of those up and flat ones in that start yeah so, you know, I'm not, again, was, am I downgrading him? Yeah, I don't know. Was I maybe too aggressive putting him in the top 10 on my prospect list this past off season? I could certainly be convinced of that. I mean, it was a, certainly a disappointing look, but in the way I, the way I sort of frame it is this. Yes, it was freezing, but guess what? You know, in the major leagues, there are cold games at night in April and May. Whether it's in city or you know, Pittsburgh or Detroit or Minnesota, Chicago, you're gonna be pitching in balls ass cold weather. Yeah, you gotta you gotta get it together, and you gotta, yeah, you, gotta you gotta show something. Yeah. Luis Sessa was interesting because I hadn't seen him since Brooklyn, and the arm strength is definitely there. Um, I mean, he was. 90 to 96, sat 94, 95 early, certainly. There's some effort there. He's got, like, sort of the reliever head jerk. Uh, the fastball's pretty true out of the hand. He gets some run down in the zone. The breaking ball's kind of non-existent. He flashed one or two okay changes. The arm action on the change is actually really nice, but there's just not much. It's just flat. There's not much to it. So I don't see much more than a reliever there. You know, the, oh. Yeah, I mean, the the breaking ball was like 78 to 84. At the upper range, it was like a cutter. It just didn't have enough enough of a sharp break. And at the lower range, it was slurvy. It's just kind of a, you know, it's just kind of there. Yeah, it's disappointing because he, he kind of thought that maybe this he could be a breakout guy based on these uh, these new velocity readings that, you know, that we were... I mean, look, I think out. he can be absolutely be a major league relief arm. And that's, that's not nothing. No, it really isn't. You know, for a guy that you signed out of the Mexican League as an infielder. And he kind of, he pitches like a converted infielder to a certain extent. 
you know, all the all these write-ups will be going up this week. Uh, you know, for tomorrow, if I'm feeling particularly ambitious tonight, I already have the video. Uh, and then Nemo, Sessa, Gan, some odds and ends over the course of the week. But eh, no surprise, I'm going to write him up as like a potentially good middle reliever, which again is not nothing. Not sure everyone will see it the same way, but hey. Yeah, no, it's true. Trust me, the Luis Sessa write-up will not be the most controversial one I'm going to put up this week. Oh, boy. Uh, but we'll go to a pleasant surprise, since, uh, Greg, you asked me earlier this week yes. if there's any pleasant surprises. John Gant was pretty good on Sunday. And I guess uh, the Binghamton radio guy was, like, tweeting out that it was his best... Uh, you know, he had the best look of all his pitches. Well, I mean, he's made three stars, and two of them weren't very good. So that's not... It's yeah. not I mean, it wasn't it, a high bar. It wasn't a high bar. And th- that just means that's in there now. Um, the, yeah. The most important thing I saw from Gant in this, in this look was he's sitting 90-91 now. Which, yeah, it's not much. It's average... You know, fringe average to average velocity from the right side. But he was 88-90 to 90 last year for me in Savannah. You can work with that. You can. That's, you know, a major league fastball. Juan Le- why? What just... Oh, my lord. I don't know what happened. Juan Lagarza tried to bunt with Granderson on first. The catcher picked it out of the air and doubled off Granderson at first. <sighs> like, why are you Why are you bunting? <sighs> that was awful. Uh, where was I? John Gant. So, yeah, there's fastball, a little, there's a little yeah. more fastball there. Mm-hmm. You know, he still has sort of the deception. He hides it well. The curve has improved. I still don't love it. It's like he's not always underneath it. Some of it's that I think I was talking to another. Uh, I was talking to Alice Garupa, who was there from a uh, baseball prospectus, and uh, we're not sure if he's like actively like, trying to change shape. I think he does do something where he, something a little bit different where he's trying to spot it versus when he's trying to really bury it. But like the good ones where he really stayed on top of it, it was like you know, 73, 74, and had some, like, real downer break. But he just kept throwing it over and over again because New Hampshire just couldn't hit it. Like, there were just some god-awful swings on this curveball. Interesting. Um, so he fell in love with it a little bit. Like, even, he would double up, triple up, and even when they were able to time it, they were kind of rolling over to short. Um, and the party piece here is still the split change. It's a really good pitch. Anyway, it's a major league average pitch, like, right now. Yeah, that was the pitch that uh, Gesellman said that he wanted to have if he yeah. could have one pitch in New York. It's, I mean, it's a legitimate major league offering. And he actually showed a slider that I didn't know he had, uh, which is interesting to me. He clearly has better feel and command for the curve. But I do wonder, the, the couple sliders he threw, there were some good ones in there. It was like some hard late tilt. It's still a little soft. It's like around 80, but... I, I don't I wonder if you know if he gets up to the majors as like a back end starter if that slider doesn't end up better than the curve uh, in the medium to long term. So I mean I guess again it's not anything crazy. It's I had him just outside my top twenty five coming into the season. You know based on this look against double A hitters. Granted it's a you know a Sunday getaway day lineup from a not particularly great double A offense, but looking at the stuff as what it was. You know, he should definitely be top 25, you know, maybe top 20. I don't know if there's a significant difference between him and someone like Gazelman now. Okay, well, hey, that's progress. That's something. It is. It's progress, certainly. 
know, does that guy turn into, between the two of them, does one of them turn into a back-end starter? Maybe. But I was impressed. And the hair's back, which is good. Ah, He's got the long hair, which which was a a good choice by him. If you've got it, you know, flaunt it. So as I already said, Gavin Cicchini was still nursing his sore groin all week. They had him running the bases on Sunday, and he was in the lineup against Portland tonight, so sadly nothing on Gavin Cicchini. Uh, Not much else around the uh, position players to speak of. I do have an Adeline BP session I will put up, because why not? Um, Those are always fun to watch. Less fun to watch them just popping up fastballs over and over again in actual games. But So Brandon Nimmo. Yeah. Brandon Nimmo. <laughs> my boy. <laughs> Your boy, Brandon Nimmo. I mean, my boy. I had a, I had him three. Yeah. I'm not yeah. going to say I didn't have a three. I saw him last summer, and I was... I liked what I saw. And so... Here's the thing. He looked bad. And I really should, you know, objectively speaking, you should give him the same pass. I mean, the same pass I'm sort of giving to the arms. But I was thinking about it, and I talked to some people that were there. And... I was trying to think of... I mean, they've tweaked his swing a fair amount from Brooklyn to sort of like a ball in St. Lucie and now this past off season he's changed some things too. Good offensive prospects don't go through two fairly major swing changes in the minors. Okay. And it's, just not, it's not a thing that happens and I don't like the new swing and it's sort of like, yeah, I don't like the new swing. So basically I'm saying like, Kevin Long is wrong. Louis Natera is wrong for what they're doing. And I don't have the, you know, the anything to really challenge their philosophy when it comes to hitting. But from what I saw, it's just all of a sudden he's, and he doesn't, he's never had elite bat speed. You know, it's, it's average. You can throw a solid average on it. He was very late with this new sort of swing setup on fringy velocity away, which I have not seen before. I mean, the issues with him have always been he's not great on picking up spin out of the hands of lefties. Um, and sort of the passive, passivity versus patience debate. Which I think was definitely exacerbated by what I saw across the four games. It's just he's not... You just want to see him zone a fastball and rip it. And he's still never really done that for me. He's getting a little Josh Satney, uh, if you will. I love that. Yeah. I like that as an adjective, actually. Well, it's like, I think I put this on our on our Slack thing, too. The, I mean, the first yeah. bat I saw, he took six consecutive pitches and struck out on a 3-2 pitch. Yeah, and it's... it's, it's um, and the, the guy was throwing, like, 89 to 91. Yeah, I'm not sure if you read uh, Chris Mellon's write-up, but... Like, I did. Chris was there Thursday night. I sat with, yeah. with Chris. So Mellon. I think he kind of touched on similar stuff that you know, it, it's too... It's almost too patient. It's too select. It's, it's too passive. And that you would like to see him just... It's if like he, gets he has a good pay, approach, he, but he should be railing these double-A arms. Yeah, so the you know the good thing is that like I feel like it's easier to move towards a more aggressive approach than it is to take an aggressive hitter and move him towards more of a patient approach. This mess game's already in the bottom of the sixth. 
We're not even yeah. – we're probably halfway through this podcast. I hope we're halfway through this podcast. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, so that's true, certainly. Uh, and there's some other things. Like, he's starting to shed speed, which make like, – I thought the, the couple – I mean, he played three out of the four games in center. And he still can play center field for me. He actually had a really good play on a ball directly over his head where he just ran to the spot and was there. You know, his instincts and roots have gotten much better there. But he is – shedding speed. He's probably going to end up, by the time he gets to the majors, a below-average runner. It's tough to play that in center field. And in the Mets, this gets into sort of like wanky scout scouting report writing things. Like, you don't write a guy up as... Nimmo's not playing center field for the Mets. Right. Yeah, he's playing left field for the Mets. Um, they tried him in right, but the arms... He played right one of the four games. The arms very average. I don't think you can really put him there. As more than a like a once a week guy, um, so that doesn't affect the way I write him up, but that does probably affect his major league role for this team. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at least they have a center fielder. Yeah, uh, it just he can play center for me. It's not much more than average. Maybe not even maybe like a forty-five center fielder, which is fine. And I right, think so what's what's the what's the biggest red flag right now? Because it sounds like there's multiple things going on, but like the biggest, the biggest red flag for me is him being late on ninety mile an hour fastballs away. Okay, because that that could be a problem. Yes, that's a problem. <laughs> like he'll show he looks like the swing looks better in BP. Like it looks nice in BP. Line drives some loft. He hit a few out to right center in that park, which you know, and it carries the right center. and It's a short fence there, really, but. You know, it, it was nice. You can see it. You want to throw a you know a plus raw power rate on him? Sure. I don't think it plays like that in games. I just it's people are gonna be my my mentions on Twitter are not gonna be good when this report goes up. Like I'm writing him up as like OFP fifty five, likely roll forty five, which is a, a good fourth that probably has a couple of seasons where he's a regular. <laughs> They're not gonna like that. They're not gonna like that. <laughs> that won't be the worst report coming off that series. Trust me. From people that were there, scouts and other evaluators. Um, because I have seen better from him, and that's always in the back of my mind. And it's not like it's a huge downgrade from last year, where I had him sort of, you know, OFP sixty, likely roll fifty. That's still a back end top one hundred guy for me. That's a good major. That's a everyday player with a chance to be a good major leaguer if some developmental things happen. But they're not going to be happy. No. This is going to go like Dominic Smith last April, <laughs> like Pretty a much. lead balloon. And actually, I mean, it doesn't even sound as bad as I thought it was going to be. Um, it could be worse. <laughs> I might it's I mean well you see him again and you know we'll see how it goes from there right yeah sure I'm definitely I mean I have to see Binghamton again because heck in a month well Shikini's already healthy but in a heck in a month Fulmer and Conforto might be there yeah so their schedule in May is going to force me to see them in Binghamton which doesn't make me thrilled but it is what it is 
I don't really feel like going to Richmond or Akron, so. Yeah. Yeah. So those are your BMETs. Sounds great. It does. It was great. Uh, R.I.P. my mentions. Now we'll move on to your emails. Before we do emails, we do housekeeping. It's Amazing Avenue Audio, episode 115. Amazing Avenue Audio is the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. You can find us on the internet at AmazingAvenue.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. Join our Facebook group at Facebook.com backslash Amazing Avenue fans. Find the podcast on iTunes. Just search for Amazing Avenue Audio and you can listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. I also encourage you to rate and review the podcast. You can find the podcast on the Stitcher app. Download directly from blogtalkradio.com backslash Amazing Avenue or listen to the embedded player that goes up in the podcast post at Amazing Avenue proper. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. You can find me on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. My co-host this week is Greg Karam. You can find him on Twitter at Greg Karam. That was the housekeeping. These are your emails. You can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenue.com. And our first email is from Ben. Gentlemen, do you foresee a scenario in which Kevin Ploiecki and Travis Darno share duties behind home plate in 2015? Can they handle extra positions? And if so, where would you put them to get them in the lineup on a consistent basis? And the P.S. Do you guys feel happy? About the Mets, I mean. All I feel is nervous. I'm just waiting for the entire thing to implode. Is something wrong with me? All the best. Vermont Mets fan. So, the Ploiecki-Darno timeshare thing would work better if they planned for it. Or if the National League had a DH to cycle through, which seems to be the, you know... That's the omnipresent in the Twitter news cycle right now. Yeah. Ploiecki has played a little first base in the minors, but I don't think he's a better option to spell Duda against a, a lefty than Mayberry or Kadire. Well, it's certainly possible one or both of those guys are hurt, but then you're probably calling up a full-time outfielder anyway. You know, there was talk of Travis Darno to left field, but he's never actually done that. Uh, do you maybe do more of a timeshare where it's, you know, four days a week, Darno, two days a week, Ploiecki. I guess you could consider that. I think, in all likelihood, Ploiecki heads back to Vegas to play every day. Probably. Uh, but I, I could also, I mean, if he, if Ploiecki continues to hit, I could totally see like a 70 30 split of playing time going forward uh, and sending record down because. I, I wouldn't be against that. Uh, you know, Ploiecki. Does he really need that much more development in Vegas? He's already sort of holding his own. Yeah, he's, he seems to be he holding his own. He, he can be a backup catcher right now. Yeah, and he's I think hitting the ball pretty well. There's value in seeing Major League pitching even if it's only twice a week. Definitely. You know, they, they'd be maybe more aggressive with pinch hitting one of them without they have Eric Campbell, emergency catcher, on the roster. Yeah. Um, and, then, you know, it's not that long a flight if some someone does get hurt. So how's your state of mind right now, Greg? So I'm I'm still very happy, and I will continue to be happy as long as they are winning. And um, like I'll I'll will be happy as long as my expectations are still where they were at the beginning of the season. Like once you start to flip the expectation, 
and the expectation becomes you, playoffs are bust, then that's when I'm going to start becoming more nervous. You know, you know what I'm saying? So like right now, I'm still feeling like an underdog, still feeling like this team's again, you know, fighting against the odds to be a competitive baseball team, and it's fun. And it will continue to be fun until whatever, whenever that time comes, if they continue to keep winning and like my, my brain goes, okay, that now it's playoffs or, or you're going to be unhappy. And then that's when I'm going to become a nervous wreck. So I've told this, I've, I've said this exact thing on the podcast before, but I'm going to tell the, the John Stewart story that showed up in our comments at Amazing Avenue at some point. In the recent past, okay. So it's you, not, not even my... like it's not. Maybe you might not have been on that episode, but even like people that have listened to the last, I think I've done it within the last ten episodes, twenty episodes. So there was, I guess, one of our Mason Avenue commentary. It was at a, a taping of the Daily Show after like the Beltran for Wheeler oh. trade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. So he asked him about it. John Stewart about it. And she was like, oh, I think it was, you know, a pretty good deal. And then blah, 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 blah. It's like, look, we're the only two people that care about this. And he starts riffing on it. He's like, you know, people always ask me, oh, yeah, you know, you're a Mets fan. Do you hit the Phillies or the Yankees the most? He's like, I'm a Mets fan. I hate the Mets the most. <laughs> it's like with Yankees fans, I mean, I think we saw a little bit with the Subway Series this weekend. They've been so successful over the last 15 to 20 years. There's a whole generation of fans where it's like, it becomes like winning becomes a drug, and they're at the point, sort of in the addiction cycle, where the they have to win just to feel normal. There's not even any pleasure out of it. You know, Mets fans we've got a little get a little taste of it, a little taste of it. It's been three weeks. We're the sloppiest fucking drunks on the planet. <laughs> like it's just it's not good. We're out of control. Uh, um, that, that's true, man. People don't know how to handle just, this right now. I guess, like, the too long didn't read here is, I'm a Mets fan, Ben. I'm never happy. <laughs> it's just the way it is. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's, that's so deep, man. That's so dark, man. It's, it's just dark. Like, it's, it's, it's dark. Just, it's, very, it's very pessimistic and just, I don't know, man. Don't G is going to pitch a Maddox and lose, so. Jeez, this game's going to be over before I even finish this He's thrown 58 pitches through seven innings. 58 through seven? Yes. Jesus. I don't think he struck anybody out. I've only half been paying attention, but... Our next email is from Steve. Hey, guys, here's a good topic. Listen to another podcast where the guest described this year as being akin to the 1983 team in terms of something I haven't felt since. Sorry, I had to use the Vader quote. I'm not a big Star Wars guy. There's plenty of other things that I can use to brandish my geek bona fides, but it's not that's one really, of them. That's really sad. I mean, I've watched all the Star Wars movies. Actually, I never saw Episode Three, But I've watched every other Star Wars movie. I went to a midnight screening of Episode 2. It was terrible. Um, yeah, yes. My mother is actually the big Star Wars person in the family. Uh, but I'm feeling more of a 96 to 98 vibe from this era. And that's just because for so long the team had been failing with the worst team money can buy type of moves. Bay, Granderson, etc. But it does feel more like a team that could use an influx of a Hampton here, an Olerud here, a Ventura there, a Lighter over there, and of course a nice Mike Piazza piece at well. Yeah, Carlos Gomez is one of those dudes. Well, I'm very cautious of getting my hopes up. It's not even May yet, but it does seem to be a lot like the ground building that the mid-90s were, 
as opposed to the 2002 to 2005 era, where it seemed more like the aforementioned let's bring in good talent along with proven crap and see what sticks way of roster building that also seemed to cause the current postseason drought. Mets are on. Anyway, it's been a fun ride so far. Let's hope meaningful games played in Flushing by the home team can finally return for the first time since Shay's final game. He also adds, shows you how far mainstream music fell from the heights of the 1990s from that listing of just the year of music in 2000. Yeah, that was not good. Uh, I don't know what this team reminds me of. Uh, it, I, I think well, it reminds me more of like the 1990 team, maybe? Eh, it doesn't really fit. It's tough. It's really tough. I, and it. I mean, this is like in the if, recent in the recent years. The last time that they were like on their way to becoming good before they were good was two thousand five. It doesn't and, feel like that. This is like if no. Generation K worked out. I think <laughs> this, this is sort the of bizarre onto something. World. There's the bizarro world where Generation K worked out. Because um, in those mid '90s teams, they had like the ridiculous 1996 season from Bernard Gilkey. And like a ridiculous Lance Johnson season in there. If they had backed that up with high quality starting pitching like they have right now, it'd be a completely different story. It's a different, it's definitely a different feel from the team. This is going exactly like that Dylan G game where he gave up a walk off home run in, I guess, the Marlins in the ninth last year, just so you know. Hey, look. I mean, if if, if G goes through a rota- you know lineup that many times, it's gonna it's gonna end poorly. He's batting for himself in the top of the eighth. That's where we're at. Well, he's. I mean, he's throwing fifty-eight pitches. He can't take a match. <laughs> he hasn't thrown sixty yet. Uh... Oh my god. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's twenty games, and I don't have a feel for it yet. That's yeah. the short answer. But look, if it, if it continues on this way, I mean, if if you're going to be looking for corollaries... It's going to be 2006. Maybe, but it, you could probably even go further back because, like, the 80s teams, they had a lot of homegrown talent on the, yeah. on the team, just like this team. I mean, if this so is the 1986 match, woohoo, let's go. I'm ready yeah. for the ride. <laughs> but, like, I think it, it probably is. You go with, like, but... 84 and 85. Like, they won, like, 90-some-odd games those years. Like, yeah. those were really good teams. And they just... won a lot of games in... They won a lot of games... I think they won a 91 team in 92. Which is why yeah. the, the year I sort of thought. They won 90 games in uh, 87, I believe, as well. So, yeah. yeah. 90 was on the five. other end of the bell curve. Yeah. I mean, there's five playoff teams instead of two, so that helps. I mean, if there was you know, three divisions and two wild cards, they probably would have made the playoffs six out of seven years, something like that. So it is kind of a different, uh, a different yeah. beast now. Our final email is from Fruk. Hi, Jeff and Greg. There's a blank there. I just put in Greg's name. Thank you. I'm trying too much much how the sausage is made here. (laughs) The Mets' scorching hot start has ignited debates over whether this team is better than all the pundits had thought. Even if one doesn't buy it, the team is qualitatively better than the 500 team that everyone predicted. This game could be over in like an hour and 45 minutes. Has that like ever happened in the last 20 years? Sorry, I'm getting distracted. It's just, like, bizarre. Booking these wins will shift the team's likely season outcome to the right by about five wins. So rather than looking at them like an 81 plus or minus five wins, looking at a team that is the 86 plus or minus five win range, the key place on the marginal win curve. 
Do you think they should te- change the team's approach to the season? Specifically, should this change promotion timelines for Thor, Mats, or Dilson? Or the team's willingness to move G or Murphy? G's... I don't... They could keep G in for 100 pitches. He might throw 12 innings tonight. <laughs> or alternatively, should the Mets look to package a few prospects to get an upgrade in the field? Thanks as always for the podcast, and let's go Mets. I think I made my feelings on this clear in the first segment of the show. Yeah, I mean, I, but that, but I'm, not I saying, that, I'm not saying I disagree with you. I'm just saying that, you know, realistically, I don't think they're going to. But I, I think that, yes, you should do everything you can always to make your team better, especially when you're doing well in your inco- in, you know, competition. I think Farouk framed it well, too. If, if you think they're now like an 86-win team, just based on their true talent level plus the wins they banked, yeah, all of a sudden, every additional win you can get wherever, even if it's just, frick it, bench Michael Kadire and only play him against lefties and put Carlos Gomez in there. That becomes very it's meaningful. Like, it's a very good way of framing it because each this huge start, if it, no matter how you think about them, has put them further up the marginal win curve, no matter how you feel about this team. And so, yeah, it's a great point. And I think, too, nowadays, there's such a premium on winning the division. Look, I mean, if the Mets are the second wild card, Mets Twitter is going to explode with excitement. But, you know, for the sort of short to medium term planning, they should start thinking about winning the division because that's a huge advantage in the playoffs. Yes. I mean, it's it's gigantic. Yeah. Yep, yep. I mean, you look at it this way. We all want the Mets to win the World Series. However good they are, you know, if they're the wild card team versus the division winner, their chances of winning the World Series go down by fifty percent, essentially. Basically, yeah. Right. Yes, mathematically speaking, actuarially yeah. speaking, however you want to, however you want to phrase it. So go for it. Go for it. Yeah, yeah. You know, give it. Let's give it a couple weeks let's see who goes down on other teams maybe somebody will need a Dylan G or something like that and and this will all take care of itself quite nicely we can only hope those are your emails once again you can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com just a couple small pieces of business to dispose of of course it is your weekly IFK I Gothenburg think. up today. Uh, yeah, top uh, of the table. All right. They played today, this afternoon, uh, this evening in, in, in Sweden. They beat uh, Helsingborg 3-1. All right. I was very confused. I was keeping an eye on it in Twitter. And this was the translation for their first goal. So it was translated from Swedish by Twitter. Well, by Bing. So there you go. There's your first problem. In the sixth minute, Sebastian fires a shot that Par Hansen drops out and VB Hugger directly 1-0 to blue-white. All you needed was the last uh, yeah, two yeah, points. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Dylan G got a strikeout on an 89-mile-hour fastball up. He's throwing 65 pitches. There's, I don't think it was his first strikeout, but I've only half him paying attention. This is going 20 innings anyway. Let's not kid ourselves. His second strike, third strikeout. Okay, third strikeout. Marlins offense is not good. I guess you could say the same about the Mets offense. Yeah, 
Although they are going against Jared Kostar, which I guess is a little bit different than Dylan G. I don't know. It is a little bit different than Dylan G, yes. So it's uh, so we're a sixth of the way through the Offensive League of Season. And they're top of the table. They play 30 games. Okay. Home and home against the other 15 teams. Got ways to go. We'll definitely keep keep you abreast of any... Is that three and five for V-Bay? I remember it was three and five for V-Bay or two and five for V-Bay, but there was a comfortable win against Henrik Larsson. I did know, not know he was managing uh, Helsingborg. He played for uh, Celtic Barcelona and Manchester United. Now he's managing in Sweden. Um, the other thing is, I will. I've been trying not to just beat you over the head with this every week, but I will be speaking at Pitch Talks in a month. That's right. It's May 28th, Thursday night at BB King's Bar and Grill. And you can use my last name, Paternostro, as a code at checkout to get $5 off your ticket. So I will hype the brand there. All right. You can do that. <laughs> That's about it. I'm going to go watch the last like five the five minutes it'll take to finish this Mets game, probably. Dylan, oh, you just gave up a hit to the pinch hitter for Jared Cozart. So we're into the Marlins pen now. That's good. Oh, D. Gordon just got a base hit. Uh-oh, Carlos Torres is warming. None of these should be surprising to any of you. He's only had 66 pitches through seven and two-thirds. Yep. 68 now. Your game day's a little behind. Ah, yeah, sorry. Such, such is life. All right. All right. All right, we'll be back next week with, uh, I guess, the turn-forward-the-clock episode of Amazing Avenue Audio.